looking to stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by hosts... Patrick and Dan. And uh, welcome to our first episode of our new series, A 700-Layer Cake, The Cult of Blade Runner. And this is a series we've been talking about for about four or five months. And yeah, and it's just been a long time coming. Here we are in 2019, um, which is, uh, of course, a seminal year. It's the year that the original Blade Runner film took place. Um, and we're still, I think coming down off of the excitement of a sequel, of an amazing sequel. And as we were kind of coming down off of that, we felt like we needed to really pay proper respect to the film, not just the film, but the legacy that the original kind of left us and in its wake, and which is why the, you know we have the, uh, the sequel made. I mean, really, it was the, the fandom and the underground following and the money that the film the film was making on home video and the people who were keeping it alive like uh the people on Blade Zone and Kipple Zone and all of those all of the fans who were there kind of keeping the keeping the farm almost and we felt like we needed to talk about that and talk about it in depth talk about what it was like to to be fans in that early period in the years after it was released and you know there was the theatrical cut there was the you know, the uh, the director's cut, which came out in 1992, I'll, I'll never forget that, where I was when I heard about that coming out. And uh, and then it was just cut after cut, and then, of course, in 2007, the, the final cut came out. Um, but it's not just about, oh, we're going to talk about maybe the theatrical cut and all of these things, but there's this almost aura of mystery around Blade Runner. There's something about this film and the people who follow it and uh, the legacy that it's left that is like a spell it's uh and it, when you meet people and talk with people who love blade runner it's it's like you found this secret community um especially when people really truly get it and we again just wanted to really um devote a good amount of time to exploring why this is and the beginnings of it and tonight our first episode we're going to talk about do androids dream of electric sheep which was of course by author philip k dick we felt like it was a it's a good way to begin our series at the beginning, essentially, and talk about the man, his life, the book. Um, and certainly we're going to talk about the movie, but we really wanted to concentrate on what this book was, when it was released, and how it was, re- how it was received. So, 
So this is an exciting moment for our show. Um, and before we get into the episode, one last thing that uh, I want to make sure we take a moment and recognize is the new intro that you heard as the show um, started up. This is something that we wanted to do to kind of commemorate this new series and also to say, hey, it's 2019. This is the new face of the show. You know, we're going forward. And our friend Craig Wright, who is an immensely talented professional voice actor, volunteered his voice as the blimp. Uh, you'll be hearing him again in 2020 Gethsemane, which we're hoping to premiere by the end of March. It might be somewhere slightly after that. But Craig is uh, is a big fan of the show and a big, you know, big friend of ours, um, and volunteered his time very graciously for both of those projects. So thank you, Craig. And, yes, uh, and thank you, Craig. It's yeah, pretty thank cool. You, we Craig. have our... your your voice work is amazing. Oh, it is amazing. I mean, Gethsemane is what it is in part because of his talent, and it really legitimizes that we are back in the world of uh, Blade Runner. Totally, totally. So, here we are tonight at the very beginning of the series, and what better way to start it off than by talking about where this whole thing came from in the first place. It's funny that, you know, we went for, I don't know, 30 episodes or something without having a Deckard show, and we, and we were all kind of trying to wonder, like, why, why is that? That the, that the guy who most people think of as kind of being the central character of Blade Runner is somebody who we didn't even get to until we were dozens of episodes in. It's now been almost 50 episodes. Um, yeah, I think this is 49. Yeah, yeah, we're just about there. And we have still not talked about the novel that gave birth to the idea of Blade Runners and the and what would become replicants and all these things in the first place. And that, of course, is Philip K. Dick's Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep from 1968. Um, so we thought this was this would be a nice moment to kind of take a step back and look at some of the... Uh, the 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 fecund soil from which came the ideas that that you know really reached their sort of perfection in Blade Runner and then gave up gave birth to the whole fandom that we've been talking about into 2049 into the expanded universe and this whole this whole multitude of ideas and people and connections around the world and if you trace them all the way back down they gradually get smaller and smaller and smaller until you're just sitting in a study with Philip K Dick in the late 1960s writing this little book it's like 200 pages long about a bounty hunter and about robots, and I think fundamentally about empathy. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about our personal relationships with the book, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the ideas in it and how they propagated through other Blade Runner properties. Um, but before we do, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about PKD himself. Um, so I'm, I'm a fan of his work, and I have been since I was a kid, but I, I wouldn't consider myself necessarily an expert in it. Um, and I know Dan, you, you're you're a big fan of his as well. You wouldn't necessarily call yourself an expert, but for Definitely the purposes not. of this podcast, we're going to go ahead and call you our Philip K. Dick expert. Oh man! Um, <laughs> and I'm, I, can you give us just a little bit of background on him, and maybe also, you know, how you uh, were brought into his, like how how you were acquainted with his works in the first place? Actually, a really quick question: Did you read the book before you saw the movie? Uh, good question. No. And first of all, disclaimer: I may relatively or i may be the one tasked with talking about philip k dick's life right now but there will be fans listening to this who have read all his books and are way more well versed in his life so i'm certainly not claiming to be an expert um, you're the expert <laughs> but uh no so i was introduced first to really any of this world with blade runner the theatrical cut meaning that when my dad introduced me to the film when i was a child um 
I probably had never seen any other film adaptation of Dix or read any of his books. So that was definitely my introduction, which I think is common for a lot of people, unless you're in an older crowd. If you if you were maybe a teenager in the 70s, you maybe you were acquainted with some of his books. But of course, in the 90s, I think in the 80s and 90s and 2000s is when a lot of um, PKD's properties got turned into films um, with mixed success. Um, but I think probably his most famous and most popular adaptations were um, obviously Blade Runner. We're going to talk about that a lot. Um, a Scanner Darkly. That was early 2000s. I love that. Um, if you haven't seen that, it's with Keanu Reeves and Woody Harrelson. And it's it's the first, it's not the first rotoscoped film, but it's the first like big budget, big studio rotoscoped film, uh, which if you're not familiar with that style, it's where you film something in live action and then draw back over the actual uh, film. And so it's kind of animated, but based on real performances. And um, Disney used to do that. Years ago, for like Snow White and in the in the 30s, yeah, yeah, and they would pretty use, crazy, yeah, it's pretty, very cool though. I've seen it, yeah, right. Except in the old style, they were replacing live action with drawing. This is sort of a, a enhancing of, so they're drawing over, and it still maintains the original form, uh, like of the actors, for example. But uh, yeah, that's obviously a great one. Uh, Minority Report, uh, which is you know, it's a it's a fun film. It, it's moved into less serious and more kind of it has some funny moments for me and it hasn't i think the visuals haven't aged as well as other films but wait wait, still... wait 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 you must be thinking of another film wait 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 you don't like minority report no no i didn't say that and this isn't you have the wait the resident pkd expert hates minority <laughs> not at, <laughs> not at all notice that the word hate never came out of my mouth um no i'm saying that um in in recent years rewatching it it gave me a different feel than when i watched it when it first came out in theaters um uh so yeah so there's those two and there's of course the famous uh arnold mars movie which right now is escaping yeah. my mind. total recall uh total, total recall, recall was probably the biggest box office uh hit of pk well definitely of pkds in the 80s so that was the first big one um, so yeah, though, I would say those are the four biggest adaptations. And then most recently, um, the man in the high castle, which was made into a series there. I think season three is out, right? I haven't watched it yet, but yeah. that's out. Yeah, There's one more on. season that's coming right. and then that's it. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and that does diverge a little bit from the book. So, and then, okay. So going back to his books, just me personally, uh, that's the one book I was acquainted with the most because I've read it a couple of times, mostly because by the time I got to the end of it, the first time I was like, what the hell happened? What the hell did I just read? And where am I now? And I had to go back and reread it, which happens a lot with uh, PKD's works. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how I was introduced to it is definitely through Blade Runner. Um, and then going back, you know, I've read a little bit about his life because he's such an interesting person um, and really didn't have a lot of mainstream success while he was alive. A lot of his works weren't really published or, or available that much while he was alive. Um, we know that he never got to see the final version of Blade Runner. Um, he got a 10 minute kind of cut that was made just for him. He loved it. He asked to see it again. We've talked about it on the show. So it, it warms my heart a little bit that at least he got to see that. Um, Patrick and, and what I, what did he famously say Dan? uh, he famously said, uh, paraphrasing, how did you get into my head? This is like exactly what I pictured in my mind, which is again, crazy. We mentioned it recently in an episode, um, it's crazy considering the Ridley Scott 
read like a third into the novel and, and then stopped and was like, okay, I get it. I have enough. <laughs> um, so it's crazy that obviously things were so symbiotic, I guess, where, where the feeling just kind of moved on to the, the, the other production and really worked. And, um, when you go back and read the novel, which, uh, I, I read when I was younger, probably a couple of times. And then for this episode, I went back and read the boom comics edition, which if you're not familiar, we got to give a big shout out to them because that was made in conjunction with the Philip K. Dick, you know, trust and his, um, one of his daughters, uh, is actually interviewed at the end of the series. And I read that interview and basically, you know, his, his surviving family, he had, um, he had three daughters. He's married five times. Um, and he had three daughters through those marriages. And um, she was very, very happy with what they did. And so if you're not familiar, the Boom Comics is an exact um, rendition of the novel, word for word, minus like he said or Deckard said, because in visual format, it's obviously they use a different format to show you who is speaking. But other than that, all of the narration and all of the dialogue, word for word, is in there. So it's, you know, 24 issues. It takes a while to get through. But, um, it's really great because it gives you some cool visuals. And obviously the, the author or the artist, um, made this well after Blade Runner. It was done about 10 years ago, I think. Um, and so you see, you can kind of see the influence visually of this post Blade Runner science fiction world that we live in now, where we've seen all these different adaptations, even 10 years ago. Um, and so I highly recommend it, especially if you don't feel like reading a book, you can read the comic and get all of the literature from it exactly as it is without missing anything. Plus it's, you know, a slightly cooler way to read it and just a beautiful art project on its own. Um, so yeah, so, but going back a little bit to, uh, PKD's life, uh, he had a twin sister who died, uh, really, really young. I don't think in childbirth, but when she was a baby and that was like six weeks, I think. Yeah. So that I think really affected his psyche and, and he's, he's bare, he was interred right next to her. They had, they had kind of, uh, headstones put together. Um, and that kind of always affected him. And in terms of connection to other people, I think he always felt that missing part of him um he also through you know being diagnosed with depression he was prescribed amphetamines and that led into a uh, you know basically a meth addiction later in his life and you know he was into psychedelics and other drugs but a lot of his writings were under the influence of drugs or coming down from drugs and you get that feeling sometimes um where it's like harder to keep up with uh, uh, and and sometimes you get thrown off as to what's going on or, you know, his, his writing style is very unique, but I think that it really did for, for the kind of mind that he had and the kind of person that he was, it, it is very genuine. So whatever happened through both his, um, writing career and his drug use in conjunction with that, it really did flow a lot of his inner being out onto the pages. And, uh, one comment his daughter had was that it was surprising to her being around all his manuscripts and books and always being around the physical material, how little he went back and revised his writing. He would like write a book, right? He wrote hundred and over a hundred short stories and like 30 something books. Um, and when he was done, he kind of moved on to the next project. He very rarely went back and edited and, and revised it. So, um, which is why he has such a huge, um, body of work. Um, 
And he really, you know, if you watch uh, Dangerous Days, the documentary on the making of Blade Runner, he really was not a big fan of Hollywood. So it's even surprising that it's so funny that you can't mention a single science fiction writer who has had as many um, visual adaptations of their work done. I mean, I can't think of anybody really. Um, everybody else has, you know, one or two of the big, you know, Heinlein and, and these big science fiction powerhouses. Um, and he came a bit later. And I think that you have to consider also the 60, the 50s and 60s and where America was. And, and I'll hand it back off to Jamie or Patrick for this. But I think we can talk a little bit about um, the turbulent times that the U.S. was in when he was a younger writer and, and, and writing a lot of these works. Well, that's been what's so interesting for me about when the book came out was it wasn't obviously we know that Dick talked about the SS guard and doing what they're doing and being able to do what they they did to those to the Jews to children uh, that lack of empathy like this something was wrong there was a disconnect there but I also think that what was happening in America at that time was a subset of people were being horribly treated um, and so it was 19, playing 1968, at, just to put yeah, this in reference. Yeah, so this was going on, and then you have uh, um, Vietnam going on at the same time, so we're involved in these wars. And so a lot of what, and I read uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in the 90s as well, and then I tried to reread as much as I could for this episode. But really what sticks out to me the most about this book is the time that it was written in, and it, our, the way we treated people was kind of on display Oddly enough, we're sort of back in that time in some ways. Um, so it's a really relevant novel, and it continues to be relevant. It's like this, it continues to be this, like, almost like this empathy test for us. Like, well, where are we? Look when this book was written. Where are we now? When we're kind of sort of back in the same place in some, to some degree. Um, but I, I just feel like the power of the book also comes from not just his ideas about World War II and the SS and the the Third Reich and all of that, but also the way African American people were being treated in the sixties. Um, the you know just the you know the, just, you you can kind of go down the line and check yeah, the off. threat the threat of global thermonuclear war with with the Soviet Union um, the extinction of living species, which is obviously very prominent in in androids. Um, yeah, and 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 you get that feeling. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. No, I, and I, again, that's really what speaks to me about this book is uh, how press, how pressing it was, how uh, relevant it was, um, that it feels like even in reading the book or listening to the book on tape, it feels like the world is falling, crumbling around you. Um, and that's the sense that I got from it. So it's, it's pretty powerful. Uh, I almost want to say tool. I mean, it's a book, but it's also it's, it's a metaphor for what's going on in the world. I think really great art is. And uh, I, I, I actually I would even say that I under it was I underestimated the book. I think it's far more powerful than I gave it credit to, for. Totally. And, and I think, you know, this conversation we already know is going to go into a lot into the topic of empathy because um, it's it's a topic in Blade Runner. It's a topic, big topic in, in androids. Um, and I find it interesting that when you so it's it's definitely post-apocalyptic, right? World War War. <laughs> World War Terminus has happened, which is left very vague, but you can kind of picture a Soviet versus U.S. nuclear apocalypse, basically, where um, a lot of things have gone extinct. A lot of people have died. Um, the countryside and cities are kind of in ruins. 
but it's different from say uh, the road, right? Where the road, while it deals with the emotional impact on the very few main characters in that, um, it's still about sort of the environment and what, what would you do if you were in this post-apocalyptic environment and like, how would you survive? It's a lot about survival. Whereas I think androids is very internal. It's about empathy and relating to others and the difference in androids versus humans. And so it's kind of like post-apocalypse or apocalypse has happened and it's definitely a post-apocalyptic concept uh, and context, but that's not the topic at hand. It's just sort of a setting to explore human emotion and human empathy. Uh, and I found that really interesting where like you get little glimpses into what the world looks like, but that's not really what the novel is about. So they don't go into it that much because it's an internal exploration of humanity, not an exploration of what it's like to live in a post-apocalyptic world, you know, as much. Patrick. Which I think is exactly, exactly what you see in the film too, that came out of it. There's, there's no, there's virtually no exposition going into it. There's no, like, this is why the world looks like this. And this is why people are jammed together. And this is why nobody speaks the same language. And this is why there's oil fields blown up. Every, you know, there, you don't see that because um, the, the point, as you're saying, is the journey that the characters are on within that environment. And I think part of that comes from Dick's, um, the fact that he had written so much science fiction by that point in his life, like he'd already done the man in the high castle five years earlier, you know, um, he had already won uh, the Hugo at that point. He was already like a really well-established sci-fi writer. He had sold, you know, dozens and dozens of short stories to small volume magazines and things. So he was really used to doing this, to like setting up an environment where things made sense logically enough that you bought the whole, you know, which is what great storytelling is. Like great storytelling is never saying somebody, you know, like a lot of bad writers will say something like, you know, like his voice was shallow as a grave and, you know, his, his hair was, was black as a, I'm not, this is not about you, Dan, by the way, <laughs> his, his, hair, I was like, his, his hair is black as coal, right? Because, because you, because you shouldn't need to, to prompt the reader with that much information because the writing should be strong enough that the information coaxes out and it allows your imagination to fill in the blanks. So it's funny for me, you know, I, I read the book after I saw the movie for the first time as well, but um, you know, the first time I read the book, I was, I was literally a child still. You know, and I loved it. I read it like three or four times probably by the time I was in high school. Um, and part of what I loved about it was that I could never visualize so many of the things that he was talking about. And I, I still, even it, now that I've also read the comics, um, like even now having seen how this really wonderful artist, I, I wish I could remember um, his name. Um, I'll look him up. And, and now that, 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 you know, we've seen it interpreted visually by somebody. It's still, I'm like, that's not quite what I pictured, and, and I'm okay with that, you know? A lot is left open, but it's the ways in which characters interact with the environment that gives it clues. So, for example, when Deckard is, like, inspecting the control panel on the sheep, you know, when it talks about that, I'm like, what is it? Like, is it, like, flipping open and there's just, like, exposed circuits? But Dick doesn't go into that, because if he did, then there's all these other questions that he would have to answer for it to make sense, right? But because he doesn't, you're able to just sort of allow your mind to sort of cogitate on it. Before we move on too much into the book, although I do want to go right back to what you're talking about, Dan, I want to bring up one other aspect of Dick's life that I think is kind of interesting, um, which is that, and this this could have been because of his, you know, his his struggles with mental illness throughout his life, and it could have been the combined effects of his drug use, which by this point in his life, I think he had already weaned himself off, or he had been through recovery programs and was done with, but he had um, supernatural experiences. And one of them very famously was this story where he had had, had a, a bad reaction to a, a dental drug and he saw this like very in-depth vision that he took to be real, you know? Um, and, and I think that that connection that he had where he was one part 
sort of logistician philosopher and one part complete, you know, almost like William Blake level um, fanatic mystic, I think is exactly why his writing works so well for what it is and why this guy could get away with writing things that were completely out there, like Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which on the face of it, you know, it, I mean, try imagine selling that novel before any of this existed, being like, hey, here's a book about <laughs> called Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep about a world where nobody has any real animals anymore and people are, you know, um, basically, you know, the slaves of a corporation and they're shooting down things that look like people and they wonder if they're people too. It, the, people, would, nobody would know how to market that. But because it's Philip K. Dick and because that's sort of what he does, where he takes these very high concepts and then he makes them into something that feels so real that you question whether or not what you're reading is a, is is a is even fictional. You know what I mean? I think is really fascinating, and I think is mirrored in in the plot um, a little bit later, which we'll get to with the with the alternate police station, which is a wonderful moment where in the fiction of the book you are suddenly questioning what the fuck you've been reading this whole time and wondering if you as a person reading the book are even the person reading the book that you thought you were when you started it, right? Um, so I just wanted to kind of just touch on that that duality of the scientist and the mystic with him, just briefly. Yeah, and I think it's... you were going to say something, yeah. And it's... I'll jump to you, Jamie, right after this, but I wanted to just comment on that because what's interesting, I find, is that um, he doesn't clean anything up for you. His His writing moves in and out of a future science fiction slash slash dystopian world and reality where like those worlds do have some rules and things have to make sense within that world. But then his works, and I've seen this in other books, all of a sudden enter another dimension or a character has a hallucination or the inner machinations of that character are so confusing to the reader that you have no idea what you're reading when you're reading this person's internal thoughts. And you're like, wow, this is hard to process. I'm going to, I like so many times reading the the two or three books of his that I have read, I've had to like stop and be like, okay, I got to go back and like, not just pay really close attention, but I have to read these three pages like three times over because, Oh my God, the whole, I would say the whole last 30 pages of, of do Android's dream of electric sheep. Yes. Like that, where you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like what is, is happening Mercer in the room with him right now? Right. Like, for, like what the fuck is going on? Why is he in Oregon, Oregon? All of a sudden, I'm, I'm with West Coast people here. I got to make sure I say right. You know, like like what there, there's there's this whole series of events that happen that make you question what, what is actually going on and how real is it? But that's the point because Deckard's right. asking himself that question too. And, right? and the way he writes, whether at the time of writing these particular novels, he was like in a state of hallucination or on drugs or not. Nonetheless, he has this incredible ability to tell a story from the character's point of view that again, just goes in between p potential hallucinations and interdimensional travel. And you're, you can't really pinpoint what is happening um, in like a lucid yet trippy way at the same time where you really, but, but it's amazing that he can actually put that in a work of writing that is pleasant to read to a certain extent. Some of it's distressing, some of it's confusing, but I've always found that it's, it's what I mean is it's not like a, clean sober person who's trying to like write about somebody who's in a fucked up situation it's somebody whose whole life was kind of in a lot of ways a fucked up situation writing about these dystopias and these people with emotional problems so it's just I don't, it's even hard to talk about it's hard to put into words 
Um, but I think that's why he's a genius, you know? Like, I, I feel like one of the definitions of genius is showing people things that they can't see themselves, you know? And I think that's what, what PKD was. I, I think he was consistently able to go to a place that most of us can't access and bring back truths from it. And that was, I mean, what a what a what a prophetic figure, Jamie. You were right. going to say something a minute ago. I'm sorry. Well, uh, to touch on something that you discussed in terms of the film, where we're just kind of thrown into this world, there's no real explanation as to why the the Earth is the way that it is. And one thing that I've noticed about the book is, it's the same way. This just is the way it is. It's very rudimentary. This is what this is my day. This is what this person thinks. This is what's going through my head. This is what the world is. There's no. It's very matter of fact. Um, which I think is very unusual, but highly successful, at least in my opinion, world building. When things are just, they are what they are, and you don't have to, I mean, oftentimes in science fiction novels, which I've read, there's lots of world building. And yes, there is world building happening in the book, but there's a typical or just, a, 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 I would say, a, yeah, just kind of a typical way that you read uh, science fiction novels and you're hearing about, this colony here on Mars, blah, 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 blah. And this over here, blah, 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 blah. And there's chapters and chapters and chapters on it. But with Dick, there's chapters, there's a whole chapter on sort of Deckard's inner monologue, essentially, like his unhappiness with his wife or his wife's unhappiness with him and their unhappiness with, with what they have and what they want. And they don't, and it doesn't, it doesn't fall for those tropes. Not that those tropes in other science fiction novels are bad they're just not as present at which makes the the novel the book um so much more than it is it's 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 really not typical in any sense of the in any sense of the word it's it's something that's very new even in today's standards it's you can't mistake oh i think i read do Android dream of electric sheep you know if you read it or not you just do where maybe an orson scott card book or someone else or maybe even if it's a Dune novel, you oh I can't remember what Dune novel that was. It might have been Children of Dune. Not to say that those novels. I was actually thinking specifically of Dune when you were talking about the world building because that's obviously an amazing series. But Absolutely. There's a lot of time spent talking about like the spice agriculture system and you know the way the like the structure of the societies and yeah. other things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like you're saying, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. No. But no. I think but I think part of the timelessness of Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is that it's not specific. So you can and which is why they were able to when they did a new edition of it transpose the date twenty or thirty years. Um just and it still made just as much sense because the technology in it, which we're going to talk about, is completely of its own thing anyway. It's not like there's a, there's an actual Penfield mood organ in the world that's going to seem like an anachronistic device, like if we were talking about rotary telephones in 2019, right? It exists just sort of in its own its own place. Dan, you have the book open. I, I'm, I'm curious. Oh, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. I, I got to go back. It's a little bit out of place. But before I forget, Tony Parker did the art for the Boom series. Awesome. So Thank I just you. wanted to mention his name before. He did, he did pencils and colors too? Um, yeah, I actually believe so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can go That's through a shitload of work. Yeah. Tony Parker all, did all the art colors was blonde is the name of the artist. Oh, okay. Uh, letters was Richard Starkings. And then a couple different artists did the different covers. There were like a and B covers. So you can have two different sets. And then Bryce Carlson was the editor. So just to give a shout out to them, because again, yeah. and uh, speaking of Boone Comics, we've talked about it before, but there's also an eight issue prequel that takes place right after World War Terminus, which is an original um, idea, which is also really great. So I, I definitely recommend people check those out. That's the first comic that I read related to this world. But um, nice. back to what you were saying about world building, um, there's not really an explicit narrator in Androids. 
Um, there are some instances of narration, but it's not like in Dune where someone's like expounding on a concept and explaining how things went down. Most of the time, the narration is being told in specific relation to a character. So they're talking about Deckard's wife, Iran, or they're talking about Deckard, or they're talking about um, Isidore, which is J.F. Sebastian's counterpart, the chicken head. Um, and it's talking about how he is personally experiencing the world. And so they kind of explain all the kibble, which is just this mounds of garbage and trash that are just sort of piling up everywhere and how it affects his mood and his emotions. Um, so the world is never really described by a narrator in like a clean uh, sort of ascetic kind of way. It's always done subjectively through, even if it might not be the voice of the character, it is a narrator. It is done through the eyes of that character, which is, which gives you a really interesting right. feel, I think. Omniscient third person, I think is what it's called. Here's, sure. a, here, here's a question for both of you. As I was reading and listening, of course, we have this film that we our podcast is based on, you know, now two films. While I was reading the book or listening to the book, I never once conjured the film. I never once conjured those visuals. It is a completely different aesthetic experience because, you know, you're reading it. So typically, obviously, we read books because our imagination is conjuring a world um, that you that a movie can't and uh, a TV series can or whatever. And I'm curious what you guys were thinking of. And for myself, um, as I read the as I read the book or listened to the book, what I just felt like I was in this very monochromatic um, industrial farm setting almost that's it felt very very low tech even though it was very high tech but it didn't seem pretentious at all either um, these seemed like very relatable people and as much as we kind of get into Deckard's head what I think is fantastic about the book is all of those things that's swirling around Deckard's head in, the, in those first few chapters, just hearing him talk and his wife and all of that stuff that's going on, I felt when I see Deckard in the movie. I felt that you feel all of those things. And I, I wouldn't necessarily like just have say I never read the book. I, while I watch the movie, I don't think of the book. I don't. But when I've read this book, I think of the movie. Not like in a comparison, but in the sense that it really captured all of this angst, all of this like, oh, is this all life has to offer? Is this this minutia? This uh, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not getting what I want. I want this, and is this for sale? And it again, I, I'm kind of talking all over the place, but the book conjures very specific aesthetics, a very specific world that I almost can't pinpoint. But it isn't the movie, and I'm fascinated to know right. what you guys think. Well, it's, it's funny for me, and until when I read the comics, which again I did, you know, 20 years after reading the book for the first time, I was like so shocked that it looked like Blade Runner because in my head, like you're saying, Jamie, I, I, I don't even think of them as being related that much. Like the Deckard that I see in the film is not the Deckard that I read about in the book. I love them both for very different reasons, but like even the world that they inhabit, like to me, the world of Dwayne's Dream of Electric Sheep is not, and this again is is on me because it I'm not, you know, Fancher and Peoples and Ridley Scott and the production designers and the people who made the film look as brilliant as it did. You know, I I'm not I don't I don't have that kind of a visual gift. So when I read the book, I don't have any of that to kind of pull from. And I I, I see it as weirdly utilitarian, almost mundane. And I, I and I think part of that's, that's in, it. in the mundane. Language. Mundane is the perfect There's something word. very 
very quotidian about it. it but it's not mon- it's not mundane like on board. It's mundane like a Monday feels like. It feels like a Monday. It's it's mundane like a low grade depression feels like. Yes. which is what Deckard is right. Because at the end of the day, although we see thing see things through Isidore's eyes and we see things through other characters' eyes, the book is Deckard's book, right? It's it's his story, and Deckard's voice is actually similar to how it is in Blade Runner. Is is very kind of low grade depressed. Like he clearly does. And I mean, I mean, you look at Iran from the very beginning. She's the same way too. So let's let's take a, let's take a second here, and and use this as kind of a good gateway into like just talking about the um, sort of the, the world and the and the and the um, the we don't have to get into the plot in any great detail, but just some specific moments in the in the thing that are kind of I wanted to unpack. One of them is. It's interesting. The book starts with this extended scene in their bedroom that I think is, um, and, and, and there being Deckard and his wife Iran, who, if, if you haven't if you haven't read the book and you're listening to the show, just don't don't listen to the rest of the episode. But go go read it and then come back because there will be I guess spoilers in here. But the book's you know yeah spoiler sixty alert. years old, so it's it's okay. It's over fifty years old. Um, but uh, so it starts with this whole this whole uh, domestic scene in Deckard's and his wife's bedroom. And they are using this thing called the Penfield Mood Organ, which is ab- about as PDK a PD PD P PDK a device <laughs> as you can think of. I can't say that. Um, it is a it is a device that allows you to program on what I would imagine to be sort of a rotary dial. Although in the comic it looks a little bit different, but in, in my head I'm looking at it basically like it's like an old transistor radio knob, and you can dial in exactly the mood totally. you want. Right? It's a very cassette so, futurism. That's the uh, it is right. It's fair, and it, there's no there's no way there's no there's no explanation of like the chemical processes that are going on. But it doesn't right? feel eighties or sixties either. It doesn't feel like it's it's nestled in a timeline. It feels right. like it's this cassette futurism in a ver in, in a mundane future. In a well, it feels there's like an a, idea. Right? There's a reason right? they turned Phil Dickian into an adjective. I mean, sure. Dickian, there we go. I guess every famous author you can say Lovecraftian like you can turn anybody's name into an adjective when you're talking about their work but I think when you talk about something that's a very PKD or Philip K. Dick or Dickian or Phil Dickian it has this very tangible yet ethereal feel to it where yeah even if you commission three different comics based on the book they would probably have three different physical representations of something like the Penfield Moon Organ because it's never described in detail it's very abstract and yet you never wonder, like, well, why am I not getting more information about this? Because you see it in your head. Because they're interacting with it, and it's having an effect on them. And, and it doesn't matter. about it. It doesn't matter and, how and it's also, constructed, it, right? It's all about the result and how they're interacting with it. Right, right, right. Because it's not... Because PKD does not write, like, what we think of as, like, Asimovian hard science fiction very much, right? Like, he's much more about, like, the ideas behind it. And the scientific, the technological stuff kind of comes out of that, but it's not, like, what's driving it, right? Um, so what I love about that is that it sets up this this consistent theme that runs through the whole the whole entire book, which is that people have no ability to modulate their own emotions anymore, and they've basically lost any semblance of what we think of as being human. You know, like we you know we talk about the blush response a lot when we talk about the the, the Voight-Kampff test. You know, that comes from this idea that like the humans are the animal that blushes, right? That we can experience emotion like that, right? Which is philosophically a slightly. Um, imperfect concept i think but but at the end of the day that's part of how we have traditionally defined ourselves as human 
Um, and they've lost that in this book, this married couple have, they have no fucking idea what to do with their lives to the point where they're programming chronic depression in so they can feel something, right? Because if you can negate something, then you can be aware of the presence of it. So Iran tells him that she's going to program this existential nihilism into herself. And, and Deckard's like, well, why are you doing that? You know? And she's like, oh, don't you get in my way or I'm going to program a fight, you know, and, and I'm going to get really pissed at you and you, you are not going to, he's going, well, I'll go one notch higher. And you see that they're using this sort of psychological warfare against each other. There's obvious parallels to Dick's life because he was modulating his own mood on these uppers all the time. And he also had depression. And obviously that was like a big thing in, in the military back then. And it was a big thing in culture. This is 1968, obviously, and psychedelics and all that stuff. But I think that what he's saying is not that so much. Like, I don't take from it that this is a commentary on, on drug use and substance abuse. I really think it's a commentary on dehumanizing on, on the dehumanizing reality that uh, life can become if you lose sense of why you're there in the first place. And so I think from the very beginning we get that whole idea. We get this technological concept, and then we also get this philosophical concept, and we get this idea that these characters are not in the world that we know, but it's a world that reminds us of things that we see in our own lives. What's interesting uh, about the the drug use? One thing that I noticed, essentially, is certainly diving back into the book, having read many, you know, I grew up in a hippie commune, so I know a lot of people who've done drugs in their youth, and a lot of what their experiences were, where they would get tripped out on LSD or acid or all these things, and they would be like, is this real? Is this real? What's real? And you see that all over that book in varying forms. And not just that book, but most of yeah. Philip Dick's work is about what is the nature of reality and but not necessarily in a direct philosophical way the way like philosophers for millennia have been talking about what is the nature of reality but more from a subjective sense of like what is the meaning of my life and what is my life really about totally totally that's what i that's what i got yeah totally and and to merge it back to the to the mood organ um I think drugs are a factor. Uh, drugs are not in the book too much, although some of the androids, uh, Roy, Roy uh, Beatty is probably pronounced, but his name in the book has one T, um, was working as a pharmacist on Mars, basically. And so he smuggled drugs, and some of the androids took, uh, I guess, psychedelics. They don't really describe exactly what the drug was from what I can remember. So anyways, drugs are like a very minimal part of the book, but really... Uh, aside from people smoking a cigarette here and there, um, which actually isn't described in words. So I'm picking that up from the comic. So really drugs are not a big part of the plot yet. I think there is a metaphor about connection and empathy and emotion and, and connectedness with other people where they've got this, uh, this droning TV show on all the time. Right. That's I the, love that on a loop. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only show available and, uh, but it's but it's not on a loop, right? It's new content. It's every not. Day. It's actually it, it's, and, and it's an, it's it's happening for an impossibly long amount of time for new content. So so which we find out, you know, spoiler alert is because it's not run by humans. But it, it, but you don't know that until the end of the book. So the whole time there's this funny situation set up where it's like, how many times has this guest been on like in one night? And like, wouldn't that mean they were having to film it simultaneously? Like, like seventy four hours right? a week. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. But between between droning out on the show and using the mood organ to actually alter your mood and then the little bit of drug use that you see 
and then the sort of draw like Isidore's life, which is very drawing, just like going to work. And it's, I think there's a, there's an analogy there and a metaphor for sort of, uh, losing touch with yourself and losing touch with the people you love and just going through the motions in life where it's like, you get home, you watch TV for two hours, you go to bed, you go to work, you got again, mundane, this very, boring sort of lifestyle where nothing really matters that much anymore. And you've kind of become numb. You get that feeling from the book. Yet they're surrounded by technology, which I think is interesting. They're surrounded by technology and everything is still mundane. And I, it makes me think a little bit about even our, our current futurism. Yeah. Social media, right? Yeah. What we're living in now and how we're like, Oh, we'll watch a show. We'll watch a show. We're, we're trying to find meaning. We're trying to find something to, 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 past the time um it's very again it's crazy to think that this even though i don't really picture that mundane quality in our lives i mean i think certainly we have mundane days for sure we have the mondays that we have to wake up to we have our jobs that we have to go to all of these things that are kind of that demand our time um but we're also looking for um purpose in our life and you can feel that from decker right away he's looking for purpose and these things he's talking about there we know that that's not it we know that it's not um what's going to inform him on a bigger on a a better life um but he initially doesn't seem to know that he's just looking maybe it's a sheep maybe it's this maybe it's an ostrich maybe it's all of these things and like how much do you want for that owl you know how much do you need down like this these new things that kind of take our attention and 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 in 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 our own way in the future in the future we we inhabit today that's rearing its head all over we have all of these great pieces of technology you know and it's still not enough because that's not well and i'm thinking just you know like two weeks ago you and i spent and accidentally spent half of a perfect organism episode just waxing poetic about how nice it was to go to video stores and and like walk out without finding the right thing because like it wasn't in stock and how exciting it was to like try to figure out who rented it right because we have this incredible plurality of options now you know we can watch anything literally like anything that exists in the world we can watch at any time or has has ever existed (laughs) yeah it's it's insane and yet here we are like i can watch nosferatu in its entirety in a wikipedia article you know like it's just crazy and yet here we are thinking you know i wish i could go spend more money driving in a car wasting uh, what you know the world would have thought of at the time in the 90s is wasting time going to a movie store for this incredibly inefficient thing because there was something real and tangible about it. And I do think that the digital, that the digitization of ourselves in this Web 2.0 world is mirroring in some really kind of freaky ways what Dick was talking about. And I think that's part of why the book wasn't a hit when it came out initially compared to some of his other things. I think in a lot of ways, uh, Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep was, was really truly ahead of its time. You know, you think about 1968 and you think about, you know, th- th- so this was an era of, bifurcation in the United States, at least, right, where he was writing the book, where you had the sort of the decline of the American exceptionalism that we came out of World War II with, where we had this crazy great economy, and we felt like we could go and we could stamp out communism wherever we wanted to, because we're fucking America, and we, you know, we won the war for the Allies, and who's going to who's gonna fuck with us now, you know what I mean? And then we were getting just destroyed in Vietnam, and you had this wonderful duality happening, not wonderful, but this, this really... Um, fecund duality happening in art in the United States. And and at the same time, the other duality is we're going to the moon for the first time. We're, yeah. we're achieving something that no one else has achieved but at home and our, our, our army 
is lost in a war we don't know why we're a part of. So it's right, like this right. incredible sense of achievement and this incredible like pit of of what are we doing in the world? Like right. we've lost that sense of of being a leader. Um, so yeah. it, it's it's a lot to process. Yeah, I mean, in terms of domestically, honestly, I don't think it can be put better than the uh, Whitey's on the Moon uh, rap that's in uh, the movie First Man. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the Moon. Her face and arms began to swell, and Whitey's on the Moon. Uh, if you go watch that, and it's on the soundtrack, and it's kind of, it's almost jarring because the whole soundtrack is essentially music. It's all classical music. Um... Or, or, you know, the modern iteration. Best of, soundtrack ever. I, I I do love it. But nonetheless, there's this rap song there, and you can look it up, called Whitey's on the Moon, where it's like, oh, great. Like, Whitey is going to the moon, and we're accomplishing all these things. In the meantime, like, I can't feed my family. My taxes are going to these extravagant projects where there's, you know, New York is unlivable in the 70s, et cetera, et cetera, or in the, in the 60s. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of that feeling yeah. where we are – of, of again the clash of american exceptionalism real financial hardship and reality of people's lives um not to mention the civil rights movement and vietnam and i think you brought up a really good point when you talked about um being ahead of its time and that phrase is so overused that i think it loses a little bit of its power the more we hear it but i think there's something to be said to in 2018 right last year was what 50 years 50, yeah. right 50 years after the time period he's writing or he's writing from and so as technology catches up i think that work becomes more impactful because now especially people who read it when it came out older people in their 60s and 70s who were able to read the book at the time or like bit, jamie <laughs> or a little bit thereafter <laughs> can now can now put it in perspective and actually be like oh right now we have a version of the Penfield mood organ. Now we have mm-hmm. this constant, right? Our, our smartphones, like this constant source of incredible technology and incredible connectedness. If you use the power for good. Um, but as somebody that, uh, can put things better than me said once I, I read it on the internet, but you know, somebody was saying we have uh, technology in our pockets that is like hundreds, if not thousands of times more powerful than the computer that was able to put, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Young on the moon. And most of the time we're scrolling through like cat videos, but it really, it really is. I true. want to point out, you just, you just said Neil Young. Did I say Neil Young? <laughs> Neil Young. That's hilarious. <laughs> Obviously I was talking about Neil Armstrong, but that's, that's pretty funny. Um, um, I, I, I want to clarify something because, because I actually sure. didn't get to finish my point that I was making. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. This is, this is like 10 minutes ago. My, my, my point by bringing up the fact that we were bifurcating as a society and we were going to war, but we were also going to space as Jamie pointed out. And we were also recovering from this, this you know, bubble bursting from American exceptionalism. My point was that nobody was talking about ennui. Nobody was talking about an existential, you know, crisis of like, what am I doing? You know, Dick wasn't writing about war and he wasn't writing about class warfare and he wasn't writing about racial divides, you know, although there are themes in there that echo that. But that's not what the book is about. The book is about what the fuck am I and why am I here in the first place? The book is about waking up on a rainy Monday morning and thinking, like who am the book is like is the talking head song um you know where he says you know like like this is not my beautiful house this is not my beautiful wife right which is one of one of the, the great songs um like that is what it's that, that's what it's about but talking heads were doing that song in the 80s right 
and in the early, literally the I think the same year that um, Blade Runner came out. Like so, by the time the '80s rolled around, that's what we were thinking about. And then, of course, you see as it went into the '90s, you see Generation X sort of embodying that, right? Because Generation X is like the ultimate expression of that whole idea of like the American dream is not the dream I signed up for. The eighties in this, this idea of excess is not what I want. I don't want the cold war anymore. I don't want to be stuck in this idea that we can stamp out communism everywhere we go just because we're America. Right. But, but so like he was writing the book for those people 30 years before, you know, almost 30 years before they even were talking about that sort of a thing. So that's why I think it was that ahead of its time. And that's part of why I think the movie, although it was sort of slow to catch fire, kind of immediately established itself as a cultural uh, iconic artifact because it came out at a time where people were actually ready to think like that, right? But but Dick was writing it so far before we even cared about that as a society. And there's this great sense of dissatisfaction in the characters. People, Deckard isn't satisfied with what he has. His wife isn't satisfied. There's this deep sense of we want more than what we... We're trying to find what we can within the world that we live in. But if you think about certainly the 60s, what was going on, not just with... Well, civil rights were still, you know, go. I mean, you have, you know, 60s was kind of like Grand Central Station for the civil rights movement. So you had the African-American community were like, no, we need more than this. We need we need to be we need to be people. And I'm not bringing that up to say, oh, they were like the androids or the replicants. But there was just this dissatisfaction. Women were like, we don't want to be housewives anymore. We want to be full people. There's more to us than just being a housewife. Um, and what is that? And are you know? And even as Americans, you know, there's more to us than going to these other countries. Yes, there was the war, and we did World War II, and we did this amazing thing, and we stomped out evil. But we've lost our way, and we can't be that for everyone. And people were dissatisfied with the war. What are we doing? And that dissatisfaction, I feel like it's a very loud voice in. Uh, do androids dream of elected sheep? I, I, that's just that's when I think about Deckard in that book. I just think about this guy who's not happy with anything, not because yeah. nothing makes him happy, but because there's something else calling him. There's a deeper oh. sense calling him, and that I would relate to the movie as well. There's something else where, but in the film, I think it's a different Deckard. Certainly, it's just a different version of Deckard. But the book version of Deckard is really this man who's deeply, deeply depressed. Um, mm-hmm. who is uh, almost like a, uh, the walking dead, um, just mm-hmm. just kind of done with life. Just and the going. only thing that brings any kind of joy to him, because it's not his marriage, it's not his job, it's being able to afford buying a real animal. Which yeah. is what I was hoping we were going to transition to. Actually, that's that's so, a great let's point. Let's talk about animals. So such a huge let's talk a little bit about that because something that I wanted to bring up with this, and this is something that I actually, even though I was just on a show about Dados like three weeks ago and just rereading it again, something that I didn't think about until I was, you know, walking in the room to record this tonight, is why do they care about the animals in the first place the way that they do? Because I, I think I've always thought of it as like a status symbol. Right, because like the whole idea is that if you're wealthy, you can afford a real animal. You can afford if you can afford something like you know, like an ox, you're super wealthy. If you can afford a real you know salamander, like you're doing okay for yourself. And if you can't afford those, then you get these synthetic animals that are markedly worse than the synthetic 
people that they manufactured, the androids, which would become replicants, of course, when Blade Runner came around. Um, and so I always have sort of just assumed that it was like a, a culture that it was like a, um, it was a, it was a signifier of wealth. It's like, you know, well, if you can get, you know, a Bentley, you get a Bentley. If you can't, you get a Mercedes. And if you can't get a Mercedes, well, you know, you can get a really nicely upgraded Tahoe. You know what I mean? Um, and if you can't get that and you get something used, right? Um, but it's not, it is actually something that it almost seems like you, you become anathema to society if you don't go along with this trend of at least pretending to have some sort of a living creature, <laughs> sitting on your roof fucking eating fake vegetables right so there's a, there's something deeper in the book than just the status symbol there's something actually that seems like almost like it's a prerequisite to be a part of the society which i think is kind of interesting well what's what's also interesting about that that whole uh subplot i suppose you would call it is if i think about today there's always hey what phone is that which phone model do you have oh that was two years ago i have this one where you have people who are like, well, what version of that do you have? You have the real version, the one that's out now. No, mine's four years old. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, it's. I mean, we just did that when we hung out last week, right? We're, we found out that Dan's iPhone was newer than ours. We're like, oh, fine. You, you <laughs> Which it's pictures, like two right? years old. And, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> yeah, no, but then you also it. think, like, oh, maybe I should get a newer one. Maybe I should get something that's newer. It's maybe I should be more right? relevant. What if you took out a fucking black And I think that's, that that's what the animals represent. I don't think it's so much about the animals, it's about. How how valid are you? How right? How how um, legitimate are you in the society? Are you able to afford the new things, um, or and a big version of those new things? Okay, maybe you own the new iWatch or Apple Watch, but do you own the 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 iPhone ten? Now we're talking. Now we can talk. You know what I mean? We have those same conversations all the time, um, and about what is it real? You know, those are versions of is it real or not. And then once we find, I mean, because we, again, we ask ourselves those questions or we ask other people that all the time. Oh, what iPhone is that? Why do we care what iPhone that is? Why do we care? Right. Well, because it means that within the rules of the society, which we've all tacitly agreed to play by, we are real. Yeah. Right? It means yeah. that we're perceived as a member of that society. Yeah. And now that's different from the existential realism that, that Deckard is going through internally. To him, he has no, well, actually, he does question whether or not he's a human. But he has no like daily questioning of like whether or not he actually is the person that he thinks he is. But society would not take him for who he knows himself to be if he didn't have that animal on his roof, and that's a huge source of stress for him. And and what I love is that throughout the book, like the book goes in so many fucking crazy directions, which we're not going to have time to get into tonight. But the whole time there's this like running subplot, like Jamie was saying, of like fucking negotiating for the prices of these animals, which of course ends up getting this, you know, he gets a Nubian goat for his wife because he kills, the, he gets like the record for um, androids retired in a single day. And then of course, Rachel fucking kills it, which is a pretty surreal moment. We'll get to that. But Dan, what are some of your thoughts on the animals in the book? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think that the being relevant in society and having the latest technology thing is definitely there. But going back to uh, PKD, uh, he was notoriously uh, uh, or famously a lover of animals. Um, I think he really connected with them. And so, um, again, the fact that the only time re even Deckard's sort of partial or minimal love story with Rachel in the novel, which is, completely different from the one that's in the movie it's, like, it's so fucking different it's so different they might as well be two completely different characters which really they are um yeah, yeah. but i think that again the only time you see him being 
happy or excited or have something to look forward to is literally in getting the down payment on like this goat, which is a real goat, not an electric uh, electronic one, which is a big deal uh, in the film. And it's a Nubian goat. It's a beautiful animal. Yeah. It's super expensive. It's a big fucking, that's an iPhone nine at least. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Un- exist. Unaffordable for most people. Um, and yeah, so I saw that a lot in the animals as well is, uh, and, and the fact that most animals are extinct, because I think uh, Philip Dick kind of famously, he's not the only one, of course, but I think the world he describes, and we've talked about this before, where most animals have gone extinct and in the wild, they don't really exist. Like there are electronic animals and then there are real animals who are being bred and sold on this black market and, and, and a white market. It's also legal. Um, but he sort of predicted the state where, again, we may not be there yet, right? But we are seeing extinctions happening right now. Um, and we've seen the decline of bees, for example, which are, which is, as we all know, if you follow environmental news, is a serious issue because, you know, bees along with other pollinating insects are a huge part of how we produce crops. Um, and so, you know, that's, uh, it's not certainly in neither of the two films nor in the novel is what extinctions aren't what caused the post-apocalyptic world. It's the other way around, right? This nuclear war caused the extinction of a lot of animals. Um, but we are starting to see the beginning of that. And so it was extremely uh, prescient what Philip Dick was writing about. And so I think there's a lot there to the animals as well um, in that he was going to feel not just humanity's loss for these species that are important, but his own personal loss for not being able to see animals anymore. Um, so I think that's there as well, which again, I think is, is very ahead of its time. I'm not saying that environmentalism wasn't a thing in the 1960s, but it was not the thing that became as the eighties and nineties rolled around. So again, it's, it's this sort of, but I, I also, I, I get the sense reading it that it's not even like a, a really environmentalist novel, although that obviously in, in, inflects it a lot, but animals are used as a shorthand <clears throat> for saying that just the rules of society are rigid and if you don't abide by them, then you kind of don't count within that society. And so they're using what basically becomes a precious resource, which is animals, right? It's the same reason why precious metals are gain you wealth today, right? It's literally the same thing. If you have a lot of money, you tie it to the precious wealth on the commodities market. It's the same, it's the same thing as having an expensive animal. It shows that you're able to afford something that is not in abundance and therefore precious. But it's just, it's so interesting that the currency is a living organism you know, right. in the book. Because in 2049, wood kind of takes that place. Yes, I mean, people ex- aren't exactly. necessarily peddling wood in the film or anything like that. But, you know, when Kay shows up with a wooden horse, the guy's like, holy shit, this is super valuable. I can get you a horse. You know what I mean? Like Dr. Badger. <laughs> exactly. Badger, yeah. yeah. Can we move on to one, one just because we're running a little bit late? And I yeah, no, I know, I know you want to move on to Mercerism, so I think we should go there. Unless you I do, have a is that okay? We, well, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about John Isidore, you know, and and what he represents because there are obviously very clear parallels to him in the in the film, especially in J. Sebastian, um, but also this idea of Mercerism, which is the way with it's something that the, the, I think the first time we see Isidore, he's he's using the the box he's got he's got his hand on the grips right and so mercerism just for people who haven't read the book in a while is this idea that um you can achieve some sort of a collective empathetic experience by gripping these like handles and looking into a view into like a sort of like an oscilloscope viewfinder thing and watching this footage 
of an old man in tattered robes climbing up a mountainside being pelted by rocks. And the idea is, which is sort of like, you know, um, uh, Sisyphus, right? It's, it's Sisyphean. Oh, yeah. Right? I, I looked that up on purpose just so I could describe it because I wasn't familiar with it. But go ahead. If you the can idea describe it, go ahead. Pushing, right. So, so, so in, in the, in the, I think it's Greek, right? Mm-hmm. The, the yeah, Greek, Greek. Um, allegory of Sisyphus is there's this guy who's, who's being tortured by having to conti- continuously roll a heavy rock up a hillside. Um, which will inevitably overpower him and then roll back over him. Then he'll have to start from the, from the beginning again. Exactly. So mer- mercerism is sort of a way of continually plugging into that experience, but doing it in conjunction with other people around the world whom you can't see who are doing the same thing. And the idea is that if you achieve a real um, synthesis with it, you're, you're, you've achieved a genuine moment of empathy. And you can tell because you're getting injured by the rocks. <laughs> So like Isidore knows that like he's like had a successful mercerist experience because his arm is bleeding and he's in pain from it and he's like oh okay well you know now I'm done. So so Isidore is this very lonely wonderful character who's as Dan said a chicken head meaning that he's a marginalized member of society who has suffered some genetic degradation due we were led to believe to whatever happened in World War Terminus and the nuclear effects you know afterwards. Um, and there is a whole class of people who are, for one thing, on world, right? Obviously, yeah. But don't also qualify who, to go to Mars or off world and heads. Right. And so, heads. so they are stuck. So they are stuck there, which, which is something that we, you know, it's alluded to in the films quite a bit, but we don't really get to know any of those characters. Although Sebastian is a because of his aging diseases, and you know, an interesting. Sebastian is the that. parallel. He represents basically all of those other characters from from the novel. Right. Exactly. He's like the only chance we have to see. Whereas for Sebastian, it's not because he's mentally handicapped. He's a brilliant engineer. It's because he has this um, this disease that's aging him. Yeah, he's physically handicapped. You know. basically. Right. Exactly. So 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 there's the shorthand to that, which is interesting, which we talk about in the context of the films quite a bit, so we don't have to unpack. Um, but what's so cool about Isidore is that he is a really genuinely, deeply empathetic person in the book. I mean, he is, he takes in the replica, sorry, the androids when they come to him. Um, he is in love with the spider that's crawling around that, that of course the, 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 I keep calling replicants, the androids, um, mutilate in front of him. And it's this heartbreaking experience for him, which is just shattering to, to, to read. Um, but it's interesting that he feels like he has to continually plug into this empathy box and get hit with rocks and pelted to feel like he's having a human experience. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I feel like mercerism as a concept is just is just like endlessly fascinating, and there is no corollary to it in the movie. Um, and also to say that I, I experience moments sort of similar to it sometimes when I'm playing uh, multiplayer video games online. Um there's a and Dan, I know you're a gamer too. You might be able to relate to this, but um, there are certain times when some games that are engineered to give you a new multiplayer experience, like Journey, for example, by that game company, which I think is just an incredible. Have you played that, Dan? I haven't. Oh God, it's just an amazing experience, Jamie. You would love this game. The idea is you're playing this this little creature, sort of a humanoid creature, in the middle of a vast desert, and all you know is that there's a mountain peak that's shining, and it's really far away. And, and you feel like you should probably walk towards it, but you're not told what to do. You just know that you should start walking in this desert. And as you're doing that, you're sort of seeing these artifacts and these relics, and you kind of slide down sand dunes, and you realize that your cloak, you know, flows in the wind a certain way when you do certain things. So the game kind of unfolds. Uh, and, it's, and it's an incredibly beautiful allegory for life and death, and it's a great game. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because it was one of the first times that they built a game where you would be interacting in real time with other people 
um, in a multiplayer context, and you would have no idea who they were. You would have no idea where they were from. You wouldn't see any information about them. You wouldn't know where they were on their character's journey. But you would meet up, and you also couldn't communicate. There was no way to like use your voice in the game. There were no microphones. You can't type anything. You can make little noises with the characters if you want to get people's attention. But the idea is that on this vast plain of this desert, you sometimes run across somebody far away who is another actual human somewhere else in the world at that moment in time who found you in that patch of the desert. And if you want to, you can walk together. And I had these moments. They're playing, playing as well. They're playing the game as well. Yeah, they're, they're real people that are just playing the game. Interesting. And there's no information about, about who they are, or like what they're doing. They're just people that just stumbled. And it's not like a linear thing. So they just stumbled across the same patch of earth as, as you are. And it's, and it's a really emotional experience because there were times playing that the first uh, couple of times where I did it and I really put time into it where I would spend a day walking with somebody and I would have no idea who they were, but we would just be climbing up a mountain together, you know, and occasionally we'd like help each other if we got stuck. Um, so to me, when I read Mercerism, I see it as that it's a way of sort of connecting with people that, you know, are out there, but you can't actually perceive them. So you're kind of looking at this avatar together and you're experiencing it. And the act of doing that feels like almost like you're communicating uh, in a way that doesn't require corporeality. It feels like something kind of beyond that. So I just wanted to bring up Journey as an interesting corollary in my own life to, to Mercerism. That's cool. Unfortunately, it's PlayStation only, so I'll probably never play it, but uh, <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll look into it because um, it looks really cool. Um, yeah, Mercerism is fascinating and like it's sort of, <clears throat> it has connections to things that are real in real life, but nothing directly parallel and nothing in the movie, as you said. Um, I couldn't help but while you're sort of you join Mercerism and are trying to find an empathic um, communion with other people that are also joining Mercer, I also couldn't help but feel um, a Christ-like uh, connection to Mercer in terms of like Mercer is also like continually getting pelted by rocks and taking this physical damage. Like he's sort of dying for your sins. I, I I definitely felt that connection to religion and to Christianity, which of course, being a Westerner, is kind of part of our DNA in a certain to a certain extent. And but also he's like he's he's literally wearing robes and he's in a desert and there's, right. there's a lot of visual tropes too that suggest that. Yeah, totally. Greek mythology, Sisyphus, um, Jesus, and um, another interesting thing I found also in terms of world building is that, uh, yeah, the characters we see, which are um, Isidore and Deckard, from what I can remember, where we get to um, read about their experience in uh, connecting with Mercer, uh, when they're done with the experience, they have physical damage on their bodies from it. You know, Deckard has uh, a wound on his side, a wound on his ear, Isidore's arm is bruised and bleeding, and it's one of those things that Dick doesn't explain where it makes you wonder, wait, how are they actually bleeding? Because all they're doing is connecting to this virtual reality thing. And and so it's like, you don't unpack it because you're like, what's happening? Does the machine actually have an arm that comes out and like hits you in the appropriate <laughs> right, right. spot? It's, like, it's, it's, exactly. which would be ridiculous, right? Like that wouldn't make any sense. It would make it totally ludicrous. Like nobody would do that and it would like look weird and you know what I mean? So it's never explained. But you just accept that somehow their body is reacting to this virtual experience that they're having. It's like the Matrix or something. Kind of, yeah. So it's, yeah. it's really trippy. And, and, and Deckard in the novel has this sort of merging with Mercer where it seems to be... So on the one hand, 
again, we gave a spoiler alert earlier, but um, on the one hand, you find out that mercerism is sort of a construction, meaning that the video that you get to watch when you interact with this empathy box is some old actor that was paid to play that role and it's put on a loop and whatever. And, you know, the, the it, events unfold in the novel that show you that that's how it was done. And the... The show host, which is another interesting thing. What's his name? Uh, I can't think of his name right now. I, I, I was just trying to... It's Johnny something. Oh, it? yeah. I, I'll I look don't... it up. It's a funny name. But anyways, um, yeah. he ex- he exposes mercerism for a lie, basically. And um, I couldn't wrap my head around that either because it seems like this is the government channel and this is the only channel you can watch on TV. <laughs> right. Right. So it's like, why would the government allow him to expose mercerism for a fraud when obviously the fraud was literally produced by a movie studio to give people this sort of religious experience slash uh, empathetic experience where they can connect to each other and sort of um, be placated probably uh, in that sense or placated. Sorry. Um, So yeah, the whole thing is fascinating and has some parallels in real life. But by the end of the book, I still was like, I can't completely wrap yeah. my mind around mercerism. It's kind of mystical and strange, but also and I love that. I also love a that. fraud, like a, a, a proven fraud throughout the book um, by the end of it. But at the same time, after it's been exposed to the reader as a fraud, Deckard has this mystical experience where he's sort of joined with Mercer and kind of becomes him, which again, like you said, the last 30 pages of the book, you're like, what in the fuck is going on right now? Um, yeah. And that's what I was alluding to when I was when I was talking about that. Right. And I, I want to make sure we we touch, just briefly touch on that, um, and then I I, know, I want to see the floor to Jamie because he's been um, sitting there patiently for a while. But just just briefly, I, I think it's worth pointing out what you said, which is that it isn't until mercerism is exposed as this like ridiculous fraudulent thing that it actually becomes the most real thing in the book, and in becoming the most real thing in the book, becomes the most unreal. And I mean unreal in the actual term, like of, of not being non-real, but being actually unreal, like almost like it's anti-real. So Mercer emerges as this like physicalized vision to Deckard. And do you remember what the, what the vision tells him to do, Dan? Uh, at the end of the book? Yeah. Uh, that's funny. I actually don't right now. Go ahead. So he he appears in the room and he tells Decker to go back and get the other three replicants that are androids that are hanging out with Isidore, right? So that's why, because he's done, he's already got his goat. He literally got the goat. He's done with that whole thing. He's like, okay, we're fine now. My wife is going to talk to me again. And then he has this vision where, where Mercer just becomes this presence. And now this is, this is a dude who we already found out is this bit player actor who's not even alive, I don't think, anymore. Um, and, and after we find that out now, all of a sudden, like he's a real physical presence actually guiding the narrative of the book. So all of a sudden we're given this expositional device where we had nothing, there was nothing that was really driving things before. And now we have this godlike prof- prophetic vision telling Deckard what he has to, to do next to fulfill the, his like destiny. So the book becomes both more, uh, like literalized and also way more abstract in the span of like three pages. And then what's so cool is Mercer becomes, Deckard, which I think is the fucking craziest shit. Because then he goes to Oregon, and he has this like just complete like acid trip, where he is um, basically disintegrating, right? And he's climbing up a fucking mountainside in the woods, getting injured, and he's realizing that he's basically becoming who he's been seeing as being Wilbur Mercer for the entire rest of the novel, and he starts thinking of himself as actually being him, right? Um, and uh, and then. What I think is, is so fascinating, though, is that, like, in the context of that, he finds that toad, you know? Right. And that finding that toad in the middle of the muddy forest 
breaks this whole spell in the span of like about one sentence, right? So we've been reading this crazy fever dream for 20 or 30 pages by this point where Deckard is like losing his mind and he goes back and he kills the, the remaining androids and he kind of goes nuts. His goat gets killed by Rachel. Um, the whole thing with Rachel disintegrates, obviously, because she tells him that she's just using him like she's used all the other um, Blade Runners who have come before him and uh, or the other bounty hunters rather. And um, and then and then he goes in this on this exodus, becomes the prophet that he's been seeing this whole time, who he knows now is not even real. And then the spell gets broken with this toad, and he brings the toad back, and of course finds out that the toad, which was supposed to be extinct and to his mind is completely real, is actually a fucking fake animal too, right? Right. And so then... so mercerism becomes this this just this crazy way to upend everything that we thought we knew about, which I think is really interesting. Well, that's interesting. Um, what I, I find fascinating also with Mercerism is almost the same kind of conversation that we've had surrounding joy, where they're experiencing something and it's been and it's been kind of proven to be a fraud. But the question is, these people are experiencing this thing that isn't real, but is it real? Is it real for them? They feel something for it. Those are the conversations that um, but uh, but stepping even further back from that, there's all of these people and people are looking for these real experiences through technology when they they could be having them with other people. Technology has replaced that interaction, which I find is fascinating. And again, to go back to an earlier point, we're living in this society today where technology is this um, uh, this vehicle that we're using to connect with each other. Um, and people are connecting with each other less and less. We've had conversations before about, oh, I text all the time and someone calls me. And I don't know if I'm going to answer the phone. Um, so we're, I, again, this is in the 60s. He wrote this book. And here we are living this elements. Yeah, and it, and it feels so accurate. Yeah. And what's so cool is that, like, it, it became literally a religion. Like, mercerism is treated in that society as an actual religion, right? And I think you could make a lot of parallels to the ways that we look at technology now as something that's basically replaced what you would think of as, as re technology is the new religious magic. You know, technology is the thing that has the answer to our future. Totally. Right? I mean, there's conversations about the cult of Apple and how yeah, exactly. there's people yeah. who are just like, that's what I do. That's what I buy. I'll always, I'll always buy it. You know, and this kind of like, okay, this is interesting. Um, it's odd because it's it's allegiance or loyalty to technology as opposed to maybe a philosophical ideal or something or a religious yeah. ideal. Right. And, and addiction. We've talked about that before. You know, it's like you wake up, you scroll through Facebook, you're going to bed, you scroll through Facebook. It's like, what are you actually doing? It made me think of this thought uh, earlier when we were talking about similar concepts that uh, we talk about killing time, right? And killing time is really, you're just slowly killing yourself because we have a finite amount of time left on this earth, right? We all have a clock. We don't get to know what the time is, but our life is finite. And every moment that we're wasting doing bullshit and not connecting with people and not doing the things that really truly make us happy, but not superficially, like, you know, that deeply make us happy. We're just wasting our own time on earth and our own lives. Um, I know we have to wrap this up soon, but one thing that I also wanted to mention is it does seem like there the government in the book or the authority or whatever's going on there is kind of collapsing in on society. Rachel makes this one point when they ask her about abortion and she's like, do you know the penalty for abortion? If you're found out getting one and then of course they ask her like, well, how would you know? You know, um, 
but it seems like that society is everyone's turned to technology and to kind of satisfying their needs or their wants or their desires and the privacy of their home with uh, all of these different things because the 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 world the real world outside you know the government the the laws and the regulation the the absence of animals is just it's just disappeared so all they have is kind of the the privacy of the space that they own and whether or not they own the next expensive either animal that they could get um so i it's not something that they talk about too much but i did that one comment that rachel made and this is in the 60s um i abortion wasn't even legalized at that point um it was you could just tell that uh there was something else going on outside that people were really reeling against and they felt like well you know we can't and and but yet when he wrote this book it was the future so abortion is still illegal um i don't know i I don't really have a point just to say that it was a fascinating comment or or description that rachel made and then that was the rebuttal to that um that abortion would be illegal in this in this uh future and then of course again because i always relate things to the to the world that we live in now i mean that's up for debate debate today whether or not that will remain legal you know Um, so we're, we're almost at time here. This episode's uh, what's what's amazing about this book is that we, I feel like you, you start talking about it, and you, I mean, this is a book that was designed to make you stay up all night talking about it. You know what I mean? Like this is like if if we lived in a world where that was possible, I would fly out there and hang out with you guys and talk about it until the sun came up. Um, but because we can't do that tonight, and because our listeners would throw their devices out the window, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask each of you just briefly. Um, you know, you both read the book for the first time at a very different place in your lives from, you know, where you are now. You were much younger. You didn't have the relationship with the film that you have now. And uh, going back through it in preparation for this episode, I'm wondering how has your perception of the book changed based on the life experiences that you've had since reading it for the first time and since your appreciation and, and your meditations on the film have been so much more extensive than they would have been at the beginning? Dan, why don't you, why don't you start off? Yeah, uh, it's funny because if I had thought of a question to ask, I would ask you the same thing, but it's an interesting one. Um, I thought about this earlier um, because I definitely had a distinctly different experience my first time reading the book. I was much younger. I was really mostly just acquainted with Blaine Ritter and not with uh, Dick's other works. And so I think my first experience was mostly a negative one of being like, oh, that's not that's not Rachel. Rachel's not like that. That's a totally different character. Like I couldn't relate because I was expecting to see, I was expecting to get the experience you normally get when you watch a film and the novel is, if not better than the film, it at least is more expansive, right? And there's more detail to it. And so, but again, this is one of those cases where I think if you ask people, a lot of people bring this up as an example of, well, I think the film is better than the novel. And I'm not explicitly stating that, even though I, I guess as an experience, I do prefer the film both through nostalgia and just as a medium in general. Um, but they are two very different mediums and very different works. And so I think they each have their own merits. Um, but I think, so the contrast really in reading it my first time, which was, this is so different from the movie. 
I was surprised having that in my mind, rereading it again now that 2049 has come out and I've joined the podcast and we've been talking about Blade Runner so much and really have expanded these ideas and I've read more about philosophy. Um, where you can see all of the ideas for the movie or most of the ideas for the movie take root in the novel. And there are some specific instances where you see it uh, in terms of like actual dialogue. And I think there are some great examples of, for example, uh, we talked about this earlier, but Deckard is VKing Rachel at the Rosen Corporation, and um, which is the equivalent of uh, the Tyrell Corporation, of course, in the movie. And she says, are you, he asks her the infamous question from the movie. And she says, are you uh, testing whether I'm a homosexual or an Android, Mr. Deckard? And of course we all know that question in the movie. Right. And again, it might be that in popular culture, lesbian just wasn't as uh, widely used a word at the time, but it's like what Fancher and peoples rewrote that as sounds so much better and is so much more effective in the film. Um, or again, the character of uh, Roy Beatty in the book and Roy Batty in the film are so different yet. You can see the root of it where, um, they're constantly referencing how, uh, Roy Beatty again in the novel, his, um, facial expressions, he's like smiling at weird times and it doesn't make sense. And the characters interacting with him, the human characters, mostly Isidore is describing it and is like, and then he had this weird, creepy smile on his face when like nothing they're talking about is funny. And and you see that with Rutger Hauer's um, portrayal of Roy Batty. I would not be surprised if Rutger Hauer definitely read the whole book several times to get a feeling for Roy's character um, because you see those parallels. And then lastly, there are other examples I could bring up, but uh, for the purposes of time, lastly, I think the feeling. While the plot is different, the ending is different, and the characters do different things, and there are things that are completely missing from the film that are in the novel, that sort of feeling, that existential dread that you get of what is reality and what is my reality? Am I a real person? Am I not? Um, is, a, is an android or a replicant in this case a real person or are they not? You really get that feeling from both mediums, and so... It's amazing how you end up with two completely different products that are a different experience, yet some of the same questions arise for sure. And I'll leave you with um, a quote that I looked up because when I read it, I was like, wow, that's really powerful. And I wish I could remember the context of what just happened to Deckard when he says this. But I think it was after the fake police station incident where he sort of has to question not just whether he's a human, which we didn't, we didn't even get to unpack that. Right, right. You know what? That could, we do a Patreon episode on that at some point. Yeah, we could. But for us, for a good, you know, in in the story, for a good like six hours, all of a sudden his entire reality starts to unravel. Where he's he calls his wife and she doesn't answer. He calls his boss and he answers. And then he hangs up and he turns around and like all of a sudden he can't get him on the line again. And he's like, did I just hallucinate that? And and the the police that have taken him in are like what are you talking about you're not a blade runner or you're sorry you're not a bounty hunter like we don't know you the the other bounty hunters don't know you and all of a sudden his whole world is unraveling and of course come to find out that that was an elaborate ploy by some androids to disguise themselves and hide in this fake police station and so it does explain why that's happening even though while you're going through you have no idea what's going on after and that, that it, and that's why that's why Luba Luft 
called that police station, right? Because she was trying to escape from exactly him, calling she, calling it, the wrong police. It was right. an undercover way for her to call for reinforcements that looked like the police, but really were androids and were in hiding, and they were going to help her hide. Um, and then all the inter- all the lines that Decker was trying to call out of looped internally into the own police station, and an operator answered or nobody answered, but they wouldn't actually go out, and that's how they were able to achieve that sort of deception. Um, but after that whole experience. Deckard says a very philosophical line where he says, everything is true. Deckard said, everything anybody has ever thought. And I found that really powerful because it's just very, very philosophical and embodies very well the spirit of um, Dick's constant, Philip K. Dick's constant search for what is reality and what is the meaning of life, I think. I'll leave it at that. Beautiful. Jamie, what about you? When I read the book the first time I was a teenager, I was probably about 17. I wasn't done with high school yet. I read it really quick. I was reading all the time, reading, reading, reading. That's all. I mean, I just read all the time. Like I would just pick up books and read them and I couldn't put them down. I didn't think much of it. I had seen the film at that point. Um, But I'll tell you what, revisiting the, the book now at the age that I'm at was very difficult for me. And I, I, I had some of these conversations telling you guys how difficult this was and almost how boring it was, or it was just hard. It was hard to read or it was, it was just uh, read like a, an auto mechanic manual. But I really, I think what the heart of it was is he's wrestling things that I wrestle with now. And I was hearing it or was reading it. And it's hard for me to hear that. It's hard for me to kind of uh, be enveloped in a world where I'm struggling with the same questions. Like uh, what is, what, What's the meaning of my life? What am I doing with my life? I mean, Deckard wasn't in the book, wasn't actually asking those specific questions, but his actions were, you know, everything around him was, his wife was asking, they were unhappy, not that I'm an unhappy person, but, um, it was, but when I was younger, I was, you know, steeped in all of my friends growing up in high school. I was surrounded in community. Um, I was going to movies. I was kind of, life was kind of fancy carefree as, as it is for teenagers. You know, you're, you're still with all your high school friends the year before you're about to graduate. Life is hunky dory, you know, is 1993, I think. Yeah. Cause I read it about a year after the director's cut came out. Um, but now as an adult, I'm, I live a far more isolated life. I have a lot more in common with Deckard now than I did when I was 17. Um, so I think it's, it's not it's it's a way for me it's harder to read that book now um it's almost a mirror that i would rather not um in in some ways i mean the book kind of goes off into all of these other things and it asks very poignant and difficult questions um in its own way um and i think they're fascinating questions um and and it's very different from the movie people compare dan you talked about the book versus the movie, they are completely separate entities. I don't even think about the movie when I'm reading that book. And I don't even, um, which is funny though, because when I read the book as a teenager, I didn't, I mean, revisiting it now, I didn't remember anything. I, I just, not that it went through kind of my eyes and, or one ear and out the other. It was just this, oh, interesting. It was just this quick read, 200 pages or whatever it is. Um, but today it's just it's just a very our our, our world is in a different place um socioeconomically politically we're in a very different place there's a lot of uh shades of do androids dream of electric sheep and the film in our life today but i i can't even i won't even get into those i hate versus debates i hate comparisons i think the film is the film the book is the book um 
oftentimes films are never as good as the book, but the books are the books for a reason. They're a different, they're the medium they are because they can explore, because they can turn into, you know, you can use your imagination and go off into these places that a movie doesn't have time to. So I hate those discussions. I just don't think it's fair to the author or it's fair to the filmmaker, to be honest with you. Um, but I do think, despite my difficulty with the book, um, as an adult, you know, at the age that I am now, I think it's a very profound work. And again, something that I really underestimated. Totally. Nice. nice. What about you, Patrick? Um, yeah, I'll make it, I'll make it quick. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, as I've told before on the show, you know, I, I found Blade Runner by getting a VHS copy of the theatrical cut at a head shop when I was like a, a very little kid. My mom drove me to go get some like CDs and some, some like sci-fi shit. And I found this tape and I was like, what is this thing? So I watched the movie and I, I didn't even like love it, but I was just really fascinated by it. But I, the VHS transfer was so shitty that I like couldn't even see anything in the, in the movie. So like I really didn't like I wasn't like watching the movie a lot when I was a kid. But that got me interested enough to seek out the book, and and I got a copy of the book and I was like, whoa, I can see that in Technicolor, you know, like it it really spoke to me a lot. And, I, and so I read it a lot before I had a chance to revisit the movie again. So even like t today, sometimes like I'll in my head I'll say like Roy Beatty instead of Batty because I'll see his name like it was in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, but then it's funny because then, you know, 20 years went by where I didn't read the book at all. And I saw the movie maybe a hundred times, you know, and, and, and I completely forgot that the book exists. I really just sort of forgot that the book was a thing, even as we've been having this podcast and been immersed in this community so much, like we don't talk about it. I mean, it's, it's not, and I think part of that is because it is very different, like we've all been saying, but I think it's important to remember that we would not have Blade Runner without Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, you know? We can talk about them as separate things, and they are, but the ideas in Blade Runner would not come the way that they did if we didn't have this book where, you know, all these ideas kind of popped out of, let alone characters like Rick, like 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 Deckard and Roy Batty and et cetera. Um, so I think it's been funny for me. I, I, I wrestled with the book for the first, like, 20 pages a little bit, and I was sort of like, why, like, I, I, I feel like the movie is just better than this and, and is a much more nuanced document than this. And then I realized like it is a completely dumb activity to, to engage in reading a book based on a movie that was made well after it was released. And, and I wasn't looking at the book for what it actually was. And what it actually is, I think is a super powerful document that feels actually more relevant to me now than it did then. And I don't think, I don't say that because necessarily my personal life reflects Deckard's life more um, than it did when I was a kid. But because I think my life experience has shown me the complete ineptitude that we have at answering the question ourselves of what am I <laughs> like, why, why am I here and what am I doing? And is it even worth figuring that out in the first place or should I just live my life? I think that's something that like we're never going to figure out. And I think that's part of why the book will always be important. Um, I just super briefly want to say um, to me, well, the, the biggest downfall of the book is the treatment of androids in it because I think that part of why Blade Runner is such a masterpiece of a film is because, as we talk about all the time, the replicants are are the human characters. You know, like that. To, to me, that's um a, a big part of, of why it's powerful. And, and and the book, the 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 replicants or the androids are basically just shitheads that you have no affection for, and they give you no even even Rachel, who you start sort of feeling some empathy for, reveals herself to be this this like completely cretinous asshole you know what i mean um and also that the three surviving replicants that are alive in in isidore's apartment um 
they're they're barely fleshed out at all as characters, and they're basically just you know murderous psychos. There's nothing objectively wrong with that, but it is really, it's really different. And I I think part of what the beauty of Blade Runner the film is is that it takes the characters that are supposed to be by definition non empathetic by the ways in which humans choose to define empathy. And it makes them act in ways that suggest empathy without actually saying that they are empathetic because that would kind of violate the rules of the film, right? They do these things that make you really think that they're human and really think that they're just like us, that they're just like, you know, the people that, that we want to be. But they're, they are different. In the novel, you don't get this. It's very clear that they are just not empathetic, that they have, like, you know, antisocial personality disorder, basically, and they don't care. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and the last thing I want to say is um, a point that I only discovered upon reading it this last time when I read it last month, which is the way the book ends. And and I I feel like this is such a complete statement by, by Dick that I haven't heard other people talk about. Um, and maybe it's out there, maybe it's not. But the book ends with Iran <laughs> calling via her phone book this animal accessories company, right? looking for, like, what the fuck she's supposed to feed this artificial toad that they have, because, like, the goat died, so now they have to make do with this toad that my husband found in a muddy patch in Oregon while he was having visions of being a, a prophet, you know? And she's calling this this company up, and she's got this clerk on the phone. Um, and and while she does it, so so she, she buys it, and this is the last couple of lines of the book. She says, so, so the clerk basically sells her on some stuff, and she says, fine, I want it to work perfectly. My husband is devoted to it. She gave her address and hung up, and, feeling better, fixed herself at last a cup of black hot coffee. And it ends with that. It ends with this little romanticized vision of Iran drinking coffee. And coffee is the first time in the whole book that we see an actual substance that we recognize that is mood-altering. And it's the last line of the book, and in the midst of all of this artificiality, and all of these fantastical mood organs, and all this crazy shit... We have a cup of coffee, and she's doing that to adjust her mood at the end of the book. And what do you do when you finish a book? You go and make yourself a cup of coffee and get on with your day. It's the same thing, and we do that because it changes the way that we feel. And I think that was Dick's way of saying, this is real. Like, you, you might be thinking you're reading this fantastical science fiction novel, but next time you go and, and change the way, go to bed early so you wake up feeling rested the next day, remember, you're modulating your mood. And if you let that control what your life is, you'll descend into this you know, nihilistic, post-apocalyptic wasteland. Not to say don't drink coffee, because I fucking love coffee, but... No, that's not to say that drinking coffee is going to cause the end of the world. You know, not, nothing like that. <laughs> but uh, maybe it will, I mean, you know. Anyway, thank you guys so much. This has been a, a super long episode, but I feel like it's um, it's been incredible fun. Yeah. And I'm so glad we can go into 700 layers now, into, into 700 layer cake, with um, this really firm bedrock of the book the ideas came from. And now we finally did it. We did our Dados episode, so exciting awesome yeah thank you guys to find out more about shoulder of orion the blade runner podcast please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group. <laughs>